I'm Laura Aston, and this is Researching Transit, the public transport research podcast. Today's host is Professor Graham Curry from the Monash Public Transport Research Group. Hello, and welcome to Researching Transit. My name is Graham Curry, and I'm here to present this podcast today, which has got the title The Swedish Bus Ridership Revolution. And in this podcast, we have the great Margarita Freeman uh, is our main guest, and we're going to talk about Margarita's work. I'll be introducing Margarita. Uh, I'll ask her about what work she does and uh, also her career path to get to uh, the work she does. We're going to talk about Margarita's uh, great research group at Karlstad University in Sweden. Um, SAMOT is the name of the group, the Service and Market-Oriented Transport Research Centre. Um, and then we're going to talk about Chapter 20 in the Handbook of Public Transport Research, which Margarita was part of. And also uh, that, that chapter was led by Maria Borsen. Uh, and we're going to talk to Maria as well in the second part of the podcast. So that's the plan, folks. Um, let's get started by me talking a little bit about Margarita and her background before I introduce her. Uh, Margarita uh, Freeman is professor in psychology, uh, which is an interesting aspect, at Karlstad University in Sweden. Uh, she used to be a director, and now she's part of uh, the Service and Market-Oriented Transport Research Centre at Karlstad University. And interestingly, not only does she do that, she's also the pro-vice-chancellor of Karlstad University. So she's actually quite senior in the university and has to run the university in addition to doing her research. So um, that's uh, who we're talking to today. And I'll start by just welcoming uh, Margarita to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Graham, for inviting me to be part of this uh, pod. I look forward to have this conversation with you. Fantastic. So uh, the first big question is, Marguerite, what do you do? What's, what's, what's your research interests? We're obviously interested in public transport a bit more here. So uh, maybe you can talk about that as well. What do you do? Well, I thought uh, that maybe I could give uh, you a glimpse of uh, some ongoing project uh, that I'm currently involved in. So uh, I uh, thought that um, I would mention uh, some projects within three various themes, actually. And one theme is uh, behavior change, travel behavior change. Another is uh, travel experiences. And a third is uh, perceived accessibility. So I will start with the first one, uh, behavior change. Of course, we have a number of projects within each theme. But um, just, just to mention one then uh, is that we have worked to get more insights and more knowledge of the potential, actually, of different interventions uh, to uh, progress people's willingness to make a travel behavior change. It's all about their motivation to make this change. Uh, and of course, we know from various uh, psychological research during the years that 
psychological mechanism play an important part in this uh, stage change. So it's very much about personal norms, uh, attitudes, and also uh, behavior control. Uh, and uh, these uh, determinants actually can induce uh, uh, a stage change in people's motivation. So we looked at a different intervention and one was uh, free public transport that uh, public uh, transport authorities sometimes use to attract new users to public transport. Uh, it's about having a, a free rides during two weeks or a month or so. And uh, what we saw uh, when evaluating these kind of interventions was that people actually moved up on their motivational ladder. Although you have to remember that uh, uh, being more positive or more induced to, to make uh, a travel behavior change by an increase in motivation is not necessarily equal to actually making a change. So uh, the conclusion from this kind of work is that you have to have a continuously uh, work around uh, motivating people to make uh, a change so that you will succeed in the long run. And uh, if I go further than to travel experiences, we have an ongoing project on fear and stress in public transport. Uh, we have... Uh, travel experiences data that we currently analyze from 2018 uh, compared to 2020 then in various cities, actually three of them, it's Oslo, Bergen and Stockholm. And uh, you know that public transport authorities actually have uh, induced and implemented many measures during the COVID pandemic to ensure safe and secure travel. So this is an interesting project comparing uh, pre-COVID uh, travel experiences with uh, experiences during the COVID pandemic. And um, of course, uh, we have had a number of restrictions to travel or recommended <laughs> recommendation not to travel. Uh, and this has had a huge negative impact on public transport use. Uh, so the main uh, reduction could, of course, be explained by uh, the restrictions, but also that is not the, the, the whole truth, actually. And that is why we looked into fear and, and stress. And what we have seen so far by analyzing our data is that uh, stress is uh, related to use both in 2018 and 2020, but that the weight of stress is more important for use during the pandemic. Uh, and we also have seen and asked users about their feeling, how, about the, how, how safe they feel to actually choose public transport during the pandemic. And we, what we saw then is it is a significant predictor for uh, public transport use. So it seems to us that the COVID maybe have created a new kind of fear uh, by traveling with the public transport then. And the third area you, you yes, been researching? 
Yes, uh, that is about perceived accessibility, uh, which we define as the possibility to live the life one wants. And uh, also in this theme, we have had a number of projects, but I wanted to, to raise one of them, uh, focusing on the elderly and also related to COVID then, uh, because during the, the pandemic, we saw a number of challenges for the elderly and their travel. Uh, and um, uh, we saw that many elderly took a huge responsibility uh, for their own, but also for others' health uh, by following the recommendations. They substantially changed their daily routines and we wanted to know the feelings and the thoughts of the elderly during the pandemic. So we took on a qualitative approach here and interview a number of elderly. And what we found is that self-efficacy and health, uh, health status are very important for travel among the elderly. Uh, and actually, we also saw that although they perhaps had had the opportunity to to travel either by public transport, although most of them didn't want to do that, or by cycling or by car, they actually had nowhere to go. There were no activities to go to, so they became very isolated, and this had a huge negative impact on their well-being in life. So the pandemic and the restriction of not using public transport has shown us and revealed the particular need of faci facilitating social interactions uh, for the elderly. So our conclusions from the analysis of these uh, interviews is actually that we need to develop a transport system or a public transport that address not only the physical aspects of travel for the elderly, but also the mental aspects, such as facilitating uh, social interactions, which seems particularly important for the elderly, uh, so that they will not be uh, isolated. Fantastic. Well, that's a deep dive into three major areas. I'm going to come back to that because I want to talk about your research group and the work they're doing. And actually, you've just raised a whole bunch of issues that makes me really interested. Uh, but we're actually in this section trying to talk about you uh, and your career. Now, obviously, all of these topics are related to social psychology and uh, the psychology of individual motivations. You mentioned the theory of planned behavior there in discussing theoretical models of how people make ch changes of behavior. Um, how did you end up working on public transport? What's your career path? How did you come this way? Well, um, if we look into the context of public transport, uh, in the 90s, uh, the public transport authorities were giving the possibility to procure public transport uh, and the contracts with the incentives based on quality increased during the 90s. And especially there were a focus on public transport as a service that had not been raised previously. 
And at that time, in the middle of the 90s, I was offered uh, the possibility uh, and also the position uh, at the, the Service Research Center at Kasa University. They are actually, the, this center is, uh, is unique and internationally recognized for service research. And uh, my possibility was to pursue a PhD within psychology then, which was my main subject. And since there was this interest on uh, public transport as a service, uh, it was a good uh, opportunity uh, for me to uh, focus more on this issue. And at that time, we didn't have a PhD education at Costa University. So I was uh, admitted to uh, the PhD education at the, the Gothenburg uh, University at Gothenburg. And I had the, the big luck, I would say, to have a very good and well-known supervisor uh, who's named Tommy Järling. He's uh, nationally and internationally recognized. So he and I started to, to pursue this area uh, with service quality in the public transport. We looked at the experiences of critical incidents, especially negative critical incidents in public transport, such as uh, unreliable service, bad comfort, uh, bad behavior from, from employees and so forth, and the, the relationship to satisfaction. So uh, satisfaction was the main theme for me also after uh, the PhD exam. Uh, and in 2005, I had the opportunity to form a consortium uh, around public transport and apply for money. And we actually did receive a huge grant and was able to form the SOMOT, the Service Research Oriented Transport uh, Research Group in 2006. So, uh, and then I had a 10 year opportunity to dig into the world of public transport. And it gave me huge opportunity to build an international network. So I started to work with researchers in uh, Japan, for instance, Satoshi Fuji, who is also very well known within this area. And in, uh, in the Netherlands, I worked with uh, Dick Etma, who is also well known. And in Canada, I have been working with, with uh, Owen Waygood. So I, I did have a, a good, <coughs> a good uh, group around me. And I also uh, recruited Tom Yelling again. So we started to, to work together uh, in, uh, in this area. So uh, during this time, we, we re realized that satisfaction is still very interesting for us, but we also uh, focus more on the impact of daily travel on, on the satisfaction in life as a whole. So we started to build up a theoretical framework around the importance of daily travel when it comes to quality in life and subjective well-being. So that was a main theme during this uh, year. Fantastic. And, uh, I mean... Yeah. Um the path is quite amazing. And, and, and um, one thing I really uh, perceive 
is Sweden seems to have a bit of a focus of of on the psychology of travel. Uh, you know, you have Tommy Garling, you know, one of the world leaders, and yourself. I would say you've really. Is there something about Sweden we don't know about that creates people with great, you know, psychological insights into behaviors? I think it started a very long time ago, uh, in the perhaps in the fifties. Uh, we we always have a, a big interest in safety research. Uh, so very many uh, psychologists in Sweden started to work with safety issues in transportation, and also Tommy was one of them. Uh, so uh, I think the 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 background is actually uh, from from these early years. Uh, focusing on safety, and and we are very well known in Sweden for uh, a safe uh, transportation system and uh, safety issues when it comes to car manufacturing and car use and so forth. Fantastic. And so uh, Samut was a a big part of your career, obviously, the the centre. Now, you've mentioned the three main research interests, you know, behaviour change, uh, the experience, user experience, if you like, and uh, and so forth. Um, with the work of Summit, would you say that those are the three main areas? Is there anything else about the work that you do in that group? Uh, I mean, what is, is Summit? Yeah. How many people are there? Uh, uh, well, uh, the number fluctuates, of course, but uh, we have been uh, like uh, 25 people. I don't know today, but uh, around that. and. So it is actually bigger than the psychological research uh, because it was it is multidisciplinary. So so uh, psychology research, but also business administration is two big subjects, and we we had have three uh, main themes within Samot, and one theme is uh, the user focusing on the user, and that is where I am situated. Then it's about uh, perception of public transport, and this is uh, actually uh, on the basis to understand uh, the service on the basis of the users. So it's heavily relying on service research, I would say. Uh, and then another theme in Somot is the public transport offering. Uh, so there we had have researchers looking into the management structure, uh, the the service development, uh, technology uh, that has been applied in public transport, and so forth. And the third theme is very broad, and that is the outer framework. And uh, this is uh, uh, focusing on the roles within the sector, uh, how people. Uh, or organization collaborate to uh, with the aim to deliver a, a high quality service. It's the rules of play within this sector. It's uh, about the business models and more aggregated issues. So what would you say were the biggest contributions of your research group over the years, particularly in public transport? I would say that uh, lifting in the the user is uh, uh, the biggest um, contribution from us, and not only the psychology perspective, then, but uh, the user in the contracts, for instance, the user as a basis for collaboration, the users as uh, a basis for service development. So. Uh, the biggest contribution is 
the user to always acknowledge and have it as a basis. Yes, fantastic. Now, you mentioned a few of your interesting research topics. Let's just have another bit of a look at some of them. You've raised the issue of fear and stress in public transport use, which is a great interest of mine because um, uh, I would use a different terminology for this, which I which we call infection fear. Uh, now, this was uh, found in SARS in Asia. Um, and at the time, it was called fresh infection fear about the concern during the pandemic. Uh, but they monitored it to see whether it would be what they call residual infection fear, the fact that after a pandemic, maybe that fear continues. And in uh, Taiwan in particular, they found that there was no residual infection fear from SARS. So a question I have for you, tell me about your research on infection fear. What causes it? Who's, in, who's affected more? And do you think particularly there is a residual infection fear? Actually, uh, this project uh, focuses more on fear in general. Uh, or not focus, but that is how the data we have. <laughs> uh, it's not a fear of being infected. It's the fear of using public transport. And what we have seen that uh, in, in previous, before the pandemic, Many people thought about accident or security and safety and these kind of issues. But now it's shifting a bit when we are in the pandemic. People think more about uh, infections and the fear of uh, becoming ill and so forth. So um, it's, it's a bit broader, I will say, in my project. Then. Yeah, not an, an, a very important issue, in my opinion. In fact, yeah. I would... Uh, our research in suggests that the biggest single user concern, certainly in 12 cities that we studied, uh, among, which is universal amongst all of the users, the biggest single issue of concern is personal safety on public transport, mm. uh, which, of course, is particularly bad at night and affects uh, females more than males and is obviously a barrier to use. Yes, definitely. So this is actually something that the public transport need to focus very much uh, in the coming years, how to offer trust, yes. <laughs> to be a trusty uh, provider so that people could use it without feeling afraid. But I'd like to ask another question about some of the research you talked about. You talked about your work about personal accessibility. And in particular, mm -hmm. you are studying the impacts of COVID on elderly groups. And you talked about the fact that self-efficacy was important. Now, with, as with economists, we have econobabble, the use of technical terms. We have plenty of engineering babble, uh, which are only there for the engineers and no one can understand it. And now we have a word from psychology, self-efficacy. What does it mean, Marga? Tell us all about it. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's uh, related to uh, perce uh, perceived behavior control, I would say, that people think that they will master it, that they think that they will manage and have the, yeah, the inner power to, to uh, pursue or do what they intend to do. So um, elderly people feeling a bit vul vulnerable. I would say, 
uh, and maybe don't trust their own um, their own uh, capacity to to take a ride, for instance, on public transport. Uh, although they may master it, so uh, we need to. This is actually also related to safety and providing information and uh, organizing a service that uh, the elderly feel that they could handle. So that is actually what it's all about. Okay, thanks for that. Well, uh, I'm sure we could talk all day about your research. I'd certainly quite like to, but uh, the podcast has to go for only a certain length of time because our dear listeners do have lives to lead. Um, which brings us to your great chapter in the Handbook of Tran uh, Public Transport Research. This is Chapter 20, and it's called Large Increases in Bus Use in Sweden, Lessons Learned. And uh, the lead author is Maria Borsen, uh, your second author, Margarita Freeman, and there is a third author, Masood Badai, I believe. And at this point, I will in introduce and welcome Maria. Uh, Maria is a, a professor of transport economics or economics. Uh, she's at VTI, the Swedish National Road Transport Research Institute. And she's also a professor at Longping University. Do apologize for my terrible pronunciation. Perhaps you can help me out by uh, telling me what I should have said there, Maria. Maria, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. No, I think it was fine. But the correct Swedish pronunciation would be Linköping University. Linköping. I think you did fine. Okay. Yes. Well, one tries. It could be ju just you're a nice person. Uh, okay. Thank you for that. Now, uh, Maria, what's the chapter? What's its purpose? Tell us about that. Well, the purpose is that over the past 10 years, or a little bit more, the, the uh, traveling by public transport have has basically skyrocketed. It's increased 50%. And we wanted to share this and also what lessons that can be learned from this. So what can be gained, but also some potential pitfalls. So that's amazing. Why? How did that happen? What is the story behind this massive growth? I think the main story behind this is a massive increase in supply of public transport. And that is uh, it's driven, I think, by this political and also by the population, the wish to, to live more sustainable. Sustainable. It's it's very strong focus on um, on climate issues, and it's in Sweden also very much on how we travel. So there was a also we, we could add to that also the, mm -hmm. the the national initiative to increase public transport use. That the, where the sector has taken a, a, a huge, huge responsibility to to manage uh, or lead the the development and uh, yeah the increase. Yes. So the goal was to double. Actually, so the yes, the goal was to double public transport usage yes. between two thousand and eight and two thousand and twenty, which mm, uh, yes. probably haven't achieved that, have they? But 50% is still rather impressive. So uh, yes. uh, fantastic uh, motivations here. And, you know, this has got to be a world-leading story in the field of public transport, uh, a concerted effort from government, which we'd all like to see around the world, to do this. How did they go about it? 
Well, they have been going about it. So this is a regional issue in Sweden and there are 24 regions. So different regions that went about this in different ways, which is one of the stories we're telling, How to, what is more successful than um, other ways. But basically it's mostly to do with increased supply, as I said, and some rerouting, trying to develop it more custom oriented, I would say. Fantastic. So as I understand it, uh the ridership did increase 50%, but other things unfortunately increased a lot more than that, in particular costs. So what's the story there? What was happening there? Yes, so the costs increased a lot more, uh, 200%, if I remember correctly. 200%, um, wow. Yes, so the cost per, per kilometre, per passing kilometres, increased a lot. So and the worrying thing, the worrying thing is we don't really know why. Oh, okay. Mm. But you do yes. some, some, so that's very interesting. And the readers, uh, listeners, probably just to stop there, not only did the costs increase by 200% while ridership only increased by 50%, but you're seeing the unit cost per service per kilometer actually increase. So often with large investments, the economy of scale actually reduced costs per unit. Here, it's going the other way around. How can the costs get larger per unit? What was happening there? What's your theories? Yes, there are many theories. Uh, yeah, an economic theory says that this, the economies of scales should actually reduce the cost per traveled kilometer. But that is only if supply increase is driven by the demand. And what's probably happened here is that supply has not been driven by demand, but has been planned by planners and politicians, mm. which uh, who maybe didn't actually increase supply where the demand was asking for it. So that's one thing. The other thing has to do maybe increasing wages and also more like detailed um, uh, new buses. We had an example in Malmö where the new buses costed a lot because they wanted to brand things. And that has increased cost also in other places. Yes, and I think another part of that to increase the story is uh, because the whole country had been put on alert, the industry had to suddenly cater for expansion and there would be a limited capacity. So the buses you're referring to were very expensive because the supplier literally had too much uh, demand for services. and. So their unit costs increased as a result? I don't actually think so, because there's many companies in the world producing buses. Okay. Uh, but they have very particular demands of, for instance, the fuel, the size, and maybe combination of different fuels. So in the end, by these detailed demands about exactly what the, this particular bus, which probably doesn't really matter, that drives costs. Yeah, and actually, the requirements from uh, the transport uh, authorities may not uh, depart from the users. It, it's very much about the fuel, for instance, and maybe the user doesn't care much, that much about the fuel that the vehicle are driven on. So That's interesting. So a part of this is going to be electrification, is that right? Electric buses <laughs> and so forth, which of Actually, course are expensive. Yeah, yeah, you could think about it in that way. But uh, what, what I want to, to say is that, of course, sustainability is an important issue for many people. But when it comes to choice of travel, it is not the overarching determinant. 
there are other things that are more important for people in their daily life than making a sustainable choice. Yes. So that's interesting. The, one of the elements you mentioned there is that the supply increases might not have been going in the right places. Uh, and I noticed in the, in the chapter you mentioned that there's a lot of supply increases in smaller places, in more rural contexts with less uh, ridership, if you like, potential. Uh, was that the case? Could you maybe flesh that out for us? Yes. So there was a supply increase not only in, so I have to say like 85% of the public transport use in Sweden is, uh, is uh, happening in the three major cities. And that's actually in the core of the city. So even in the suburbs, the public transport use falls a lot. So this wish, this idea that now everyone should have a bus <clears throat> and wherever you live, it implies that uh, a lot of yeah, supply increase happen also in the periphery, not actually rural areas. It's just, just outside where people live in small houses. It's difficult to maintain high yeah, concentrated flows, and that inc- uh, reduces uh, occupancy levels. That's very interesting. So mm. what you mentioned there is an equity perspective, that there was yes. a requirement for if we're going to do this investment to put it in evenly in all places, uh, and also there was the environmental concern. So those objectives uh, superseded the efficiency objectives making this quite an expensive measure. Uh, tell me, how, the, how did the environmental side go? What's been happening to carbon emissions? Have they been uh, significantly reduced as a result of all this? Well, the thing is, we don't really know, but we see no signs. For instance, in Kolstad, where, um, where Margareta lives, uh, the in- public transport use increased even more than the average level in Sweden, but we see no sign that car use reduced more or even reduced at all oh, that's from travel stories. Yes, so, and on the national level, we see no re- re- reduction in car use either. But the common uh, understanding of knowledge in public transport is if you increase supply, you're likely to have a small, but you should have an effect on car use. So why was car use not affected? Actually, people's uh, people's travel beha- behavior increased. So they made more trips, uh, but not necessarily reducing the car use. So when you increase supply, you also make increase the possibilities to travel and people travel more. Well, that's very interesting. Which, which be positive. We also have the, the worrying thing that young people in particular, they, they cycle less. So you have uh, people, and, and that's interesting if you, for instance, compare Copenhagen, which is the um, capital of Denmark, which have most mo- a lot more cycling than Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, but Stockholm has more public transport, but the share of car trips is the same. I see. So what happened to cycling during all of this? Was cycling at all affected? It's their own trends, but on, on the average level, national level, cycling has been falling in Sweden for a long time. But if you go to the central Stockholm again, it's increasing. Okay. So on national level, but it seems, it's difficult to say whether, what, what's, what, what's driving this. So you don't know if the increase in public transport affected cycling, because that would not be a positive outcome of this. And indeed, what you were saying then, Margarita, about overall travel increasing, that would not be environmentally very uh, effective because that's more movement, more environmental impact. 
Um, so your, you, your purpose in the chapter was to look at the good and the bad. Tell me about the good and tell me about the bad. Well, I think we have discussed the bad, um, so I don't think we need to say so much more about that. But one thing about the equity issue is that in Sweden, public transport is subsidized about 50% from taxpayers and the rest is um, paid by the travelers. But since the cost have increased so much, it's the ticket prices have also increased oh, a lot. And that is so that that's worrying me that it's the, this is low income people that are suffering from this. So we try and aim at increasing public transport so much, but what's also happening is that the cost increases. So actually, that group might be hurt. So maybe that is the most worrying thing. The best thing I think is that it's shown that it's possible to increase public transport use a lot. You can do it, and you can do it pretty quickly, which I think is the main lesson learned, which is a good thing. Fantastic. Yeah, well, that is a good side of it. Now, tell me about the where the increases were better. What, what sort of packages of measures were the types that were more effective here, would you say? Uh, comparing Malmö and Karlstadan, it seems to me that uh, the quality improvements made in Karlstad had a higher efficiency uh, than the uh, big fancy tram that was uh, implemented in Malmö. So, Maybe that is on the good side then, that uh, it may be more cost effective to um, make uh, the information more visible and better understandable, to make the comfort um, better, uh, to increase the accessibility actually uh, for the users, actually have an effect on, on the attitudes of that spot. Great. And so the Malmo case was a bus rapid transit, really, wasn't it? It was a yeah. advanced mm-hmm. bus design, which was yeah, made bespoke, make, make, one of these buses that looks awfully like a tram, which, of mm. course, would be a lot cheaper than a tram in theory. But you're saying that that didn't seem to have had a, as much an effect in terms of efficiency. Is that the no. case? Yeah, no, it didn't. And, and also, so what happens, the capacity of these <clears throat> buses are much larger than standard bus, but that also implied that the, um, the frequency reduced. Ah. Uh, so it doesn't seem like the generalized cost actually was impacted and we couldn't see in Malmö actually that the public transport use increased anything from ticket sales data. Oh, wow. Well, that's a very interesting set of outcomes. We started with very laudable objectives, objectives which the transit industry worldwide would be, you know, loved for. But you have an interesting story uh, about the realities of that. So what do you think the lessons are learned from all of this are? Tell us about your conclusions. Margareta, do you want to start? Uh, I could uh, say something. Uh, one lesson is that you need to work with the continuously quality improvements within public transport in order to provide an attractive service that actually have an influence on people's travel behavior. And that is what we saw at Karlstad. And you should do it uh, on the basis of the users. You should have information that is easy, understandable, visible, and uh, nearby, so so to say, accessible. Uh, So that is uh, a major conclusion. Never stop doing quality work. Fantastic. Any other major conclusions, Maria? Yes, so I think two things. First of all, so first... New fancy buses are not, um, there's a recipe to success, but you can actually go with, it doesn't seem to be so important. 
the service, um, how people feel is much more important. And then when you extend capacity in public transport, very sensitive where people actually live. And this is very difficult because you there's a trade-off between people seeing public transport as a right, so I can move wherever I want and still demand a bus, but that is going to hurt other people, often lower-income people living in more densely populated areas where you have higher volumes, which have to pay for this. So that political trade-off should be, I think, highlighted and be, um, yes, discussed. Now, that wouldn't apply everywhere, of course. In many authorities, the fares are controlled, but you have a semi-commercial regulatory system which requires fares to be adjusted uh, if if revenues uh, and costs increase, I suppose. Um, No, the the fares are still controlled uh, from political parties, so it's politics. But still, if just cost keeps increasing, someone has to pay. And we also need, like, um, healthcare. So even even so, the cost has to be paid by someone. Well, this is a very interesting and important story, I think, to the world of, of public transport. Now, what, do you, what would you say we should learn here for the future of research in this area? What else should we be asking questions of in transport research, public transport research? Well, if I uh, may start then, uh, we have talked a lot about service quality, critical incidents where I started, and... Uh, satisfaction and quality in life. I think we should keep on working on these uh, issues. Uh, It is very much about easing the daily life of people. And we want to do that in a sustainable way. And public transport is a major solution to that. So we have to to raise the occupancy in in the buses. And... uh, This is how we should continue the work, but at the same time, of course, uh, focusing on how to demarketing or making the car a less attractive Ah, choice. Of course, none of this, were there any uh, sticks? It was all carrots. How about, Maria, do you have any, any insights really for researchers about future research ideas coming out of this? Yes. I think one thing is that we need to know more about how and when and if more public transport use reduces car use and in what settings um, and how can we promote that? Because that is actually the key issue, one of the key issues, uh, if if and how this would reduce carbon emissions. And then I think in, in looking ahead, I think electri- electrification. So new buses, electrical buses will be more expensive. When is this appropriate? If you, on the other hand, buy more expensive buses, gets a fair increase and maybe less public transport use. So looking more at that trade-off, I think, would be useful. Yeah, what I like about your chapter is it sort of gives us a reality check about these grand ideas that we have, but there's a need to look closely at these ideas and be careful about how we go about them. I think perhaps from my perspective, the really big insight is increasing public transport everywhere is not necessarily a great idea because some areas will be a lot less productive than others. So we have to be careful about that. That's great. Uh, thank you very much for, for that. Um, uh, your chapter is uh, chapter uh, 20 in the Handbook of Public Transport Research. And listeners, that chapter is going to be available on the Edward Elgar uh, website.
And also we'll put a link to it in the show notes, which will accompany the podcast. And we'll include a link to uh, both uh, Margarita's uh, background and her research group at Karlstad University, as well as uh, Maria and her work. Uh, so I'll conclude uh, this session by just thanking you both, Margarita and Maria, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. You've been listening to Researching Transit, the public transport research podcast. I'm Laura Aston, and today's host was Professor Graham Curry. Our producer is Gillian Area. This show is brought to you by Monash University's Public Transport Research Group. For more episodes and information about public transport, visit our website, ptrg.info, or check out the research database run by PTRG at www.worldtransitresearch.info. If you enjoy our show or have any feedback, let us know. We're on Twitter with the handle Transit Podcast, or you can find more ways to contact us in the show notes. See you next time. Thank you.